Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Uh, my name is Chris Causey. If you're new here today, I'm the pastor, and I'm thrilled that you are joining us in the midst of our series, Light of the World. I have a question for you. Um, maybe you take a little bit of a trip down memory lane. Do you have a present that you never, you never got it, and you just lived with, like, lifelong disappointment because of it? Do you have something that you asked for when you were smaller, maybe even as an adult? Uh, maybe you're in a relationship right now, and it's, you know, subtle hints to put a ring on it, and it still hasn't happened, right? Like, do you have something right now that you can think of that's a present you asked for that you never got or you haven't gotten yet, and you live with disappointment? For me, I have one of those things. It's almost embarrassing to say it. My, my wife laughed at me, actually, out loud when I told her what it was for me that, I, that kind of lingered um, through childhood and adulthood. And my counselor said, in a few more years, I'll finally be free from this. Um, it's um, when I was a, a, like a young teenager, the thing that I wanted, the, the thing that I had built up in my mind that I thought was going to be extraordinary, if I could just get it for Christmas and beg for it, asked for it, and thought that morning when I walked in and there was the tree that surely it was going to be beneath it. And I remember vividly the emotion of walking into that room that day and it wasn't there. And just being devastated. I didn't even care what was there. All I noticed was what wasn't. What was missing, this thing that I still carry today, was I really wanted a shortwave radio, and I just didn't have one. I, I don't know why a shortwave radio was the thing that I thought would complete my life. Um, you can laugh at me. I'm going to give you permission to laugh at me, okay? Because I laugh at me now looking back. I'm like, why did I want a shortwave radio? Like, I remember begging my mom for it because I thought it was the coolest thing ever to be able to, like, just talk into it and hear what other people are talking about. I mean, it was kind of like the old school equivalent of Twitter without some of the, like, lingering evidence of what gets said. But for me, in my mind, I thought it would complete me. And, and as ridiculous as it may sound, um, and as ridiculous as it sounds to me now, looking back, I remember being disappointed. I don't remember what I got that year, but I remember what I didn't get. And it's funny how Christmas can do that. See, I think that the holiday seasons is a magnifier. It's an amplifier. Joys and pleasures get bigger, and so does the disappointments. So does... The not yet, so does the not anymores. They get bigger too. And last week, I introduced this idea that I really want to carry over the next two, two more weeks of reclaiming that notion of Merry Christmas. That when we say Merry Christmas, it's a declaration of hope. And I heard from some of you that it really was just a reminder for you and it was an encouragement to you. And what I want to do over the next two weeks is give you some handles to kind of take that further into your life, to kind of further unpack what does it mean to, to really see the phrase Merry Christmas as a statement of hope 
that can actually bring hope into your situation and circumstance, no matter what you're going through. And what I want to do over the next two weeks is tackle two of the more um, present things in our lives, not just around the holiday season, but honestly, in every, every season of life. This week, I want to look at how do we navigate difficult moments or disappointing moments. And next week, I want to talk about how we deal with difficult people, because we all have difficult people in our families, in our workplaces. And if you don't have someone in your life that's difficult, then it probably means you're the difficult one. Okay? So we all have them. And this week, I want to look at difficult and disappointing moments. And next week, I want to look at dealing with difficult people. Because these are the two areas where I think that phrase, Merry Christmas, bumps up against it the most. And to begin our journey around how do we deal with disappointing moments, grand and small, from shortwave radios to to everything else, um, I want to take you to a, a, a moment in the Christmas story that doesn't get as much attention as some of the other stories does. But it's a really helpful moment because it's, in some ways, it's the prequel to the Christmas story. If the Christmas story was a movie, this would be its prequel. And this sets the stage for what will play out in the Christmas story. And in order to get there, we we have to turn to one of the biographies written on the life of Jesus that's named after the author, Luke. See, Luke is an interesting guy. When you look at the four biographies on the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have their distinctives. Luke is considered to be one of the most beautiful um, ancient writings in antiquities because uh, Luke was clearly a very intelligent man. Um, He was a medical doctor turned researcher. Um, I mean, Luke is essentially Netflix before there's television. That's what the book of Luke is. It's a documentary. And at the beginning of the book, he, he lets us know what it's about, that he, there is a a really wealthy patron um, who is really high up in the Roman government who's become a Christian. And he's wanting to know more about the faith. And he doesn't just want to, he doesn't want to just read what everyone else is reading. He actually wants to research it himself. And so this wealthy patron, um, Theophilus is his name, um, actually hires Luke as essentially a private investigator slash historian to go and dig into this Christian backstory so that he will understand it more. And so Luke, with this wealthy donor, is given the commission, go figure out and find out everything you can about this Christian thing, which is why Luke actually writes two books in the New Testament portion of the Bible. He writes the, in the Christian scriptures, he's responsible for the book named after him, which primarily focuses on the life of Jesus. And he writes the book called the book of Acts, which is primarily focused on the history of the early church. Luke's commission was, hey, dig into it, figure out this thing is true, and come back and give me a careful and orderly report, which is the words that's written right before the story we're about to get into. Luke, when he says, I want to give you a careful report, that's an ancient way of saying to Theophilus, I'm going to put this in chronological order for you, so that you'll have an understanding of what happens. Luke gives us insight into Jesus's life in ways that no other of the biographies do. And it's primarily because Luke had a source um, as a really good journalist. He had a source that kind of trumped 
a lot of the other sources that the other writers used when it came to the early years of Jesus. That we know that Luke sits down with Mary, Jesus' mother, and, and through a series of interviews and conversations and through his relationship with her, pulls out details about the Christmas story that you don't find in any of the other biographical, biographical reports of Jesus. And it's because Luke's time with Mary, it's because his, his interactions with her that we glean and learn things that you don't get in the other reports because the people that were writing them did not have access to this information. And so Luke sits down with Mary, and Mary provides a bulk of the first couple chapters of the book of Luke. And we'll see that in a few minutes, how that fleshes out a little bit. So he sits down, he, he writes his introduction in the first four verses of the book of Luke, and then he launches into this story that I want us to look at today in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. And there's... Uh, in the message notes, Jason referenced, it's already preloaded for you. Um, when you first open it, it may feel a little overwhelming because I'm giving you the entire story. We will not have time to go through the entire story today. So I'm going to leap kind of through it and summarize some of it. But I've already put in bold the pieces that I want you to, to, to drill into. I'm going to be working on this morning. But later in the week or even later on today, you can go back and read the full account of this story that Mary provides to Luke. In verse 5, it says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea. The reason Luke writes that, remember, he's a historian. He's been paid to research, to dig in, and to document what he finds out. And so Luke um, is putting in pieces of details that for a first century individual would have defined the timeline that we're working with. Luke's a historian, so he's, he's going ahead for Theophilus and defining this really tight time frame around who's, in, who's ruling because that was an ancient way of kind of calendaring events. They would tell you who was in control at that time. Ancient coins, they would do the same thing. Coinage often had, when it was stamped, it had the emperor or the ruler or the king's image on it so that when just by looking at the coin, you would know instantly what time period it came from. So this is what Luke is doing as a good historian. He tells us there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abishai, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Now for us, we're kind of disconnected from this, but for someone drilling in and detailing these, these pieces, these details are really important. You see, the Jewish religious system was centered around the temple. And the, the individuals, the only individuals that could actually go into that temple um, were a group of people who were called the priest. Now the priest, to be a priest, it wasn't a job you could work towards. You had to be born into it. To even qualify, you had to be born into a certain bloodline. And that's why we find out that Elizabeth and um, Zechariah are both descendants of Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses, the great famous liberator of the Jewish people. Aaron, his brother, um, is chosen to be the priest. And so every single descendant of Aaron carried with it a special honor because they were the only ones who could even qualify to apply for the job. So what we know from the get-go is before we even dig into the story of who these, this couple is, they're both very special within the Jewish kind of framework of the day. They come from a special bloodline, and their entire life looked different from a normal Jewish man or a woman growing up because the priests were not allowed to own land. They grew up in a certain community, a certain neighborhood, and from an early age, their entire life centered around where they came from 
and what they were uniquely positioned to do because of it. And so verse 6, we see that both of them were righteous in the sight of God because you can't assume just because they're priests that they're perfect because that's not the case. There are historical records of priests who did horrible things that used the power that came with being a priest to abuse it. Unfortunately, that still happens today. And so what we find out is Luke is making the point, hey, it's, uh, you need to know they didn't just have the bloodline. They also had the life that reflected it. They were both righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, for a Jewish person, there were over 600 decrees in the ancient law. The priest would have known and memorized all 600 plus of them. So I don't know about you, but if you're just being candid with yourself, how are you doing on the Ten Commandments this week, right? Not lying, you know, not like just, I mean, just flip through those things. They were doing all 600 plus blamelessly. So you get a little bit of a glimpse of what kind of people they are. And then verse 7, it says, but they were childless because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. So we learn in just a few couple sentences, we have enough information to paint a full picture of who this couple is. They're blameless, they're committed to their faith, they're committed to God, but simultaneously, they're childless. And this isn't just temporary childlessness, it's permanent. Because Luke makes the point to add, but they were very old. They're past that point there is no return. It's done. Now, you need to recognize that, like, in this ancient time period, um, there, was a, an, there was a little bit of a stigma around infertility and childlessness. That This isn't a perfect illustration, but I overhear conversations sometimes. When people walk by homeless people, I'll hear people say, well, they probably, they're getting what they deserved, or they chose that. And kind of, there's like a stigma that even in our culture gets attached to certain people, people who are addicts, people who are homeless. And, and there's some things that get kind of taken to this extreme and applied to all of them. And this, this, this stigma that we still as humans apply to others was applied to this couple in that day. And the, I bring up those illustrations because people just say it and they never even question it. They walk by someone who's homeless and they're like, yeah, they, they're probably lazy. They don't, they, want to, they don't want to work. And they just keep moving on. And in this day, people walked by people who didn't have children, and they automatically assumed something was wrong with their life. If you didn't have a child, it meant you were punished by God because you did something that deserved it. It was a heavy stigma. For a woman to not be able to have a child was disgraceful. It was akin to that great art, you know, early American novel around the scarlet letter. It was, a, it was a stamp that everyone saw and everyone whispered about you when you walked by. And to, to make it worse, like he's a priest and she comes from a priestly bloodline and yet what they, well, you know, they, they come from that bloodline, but clearly there must be some other things going on we don't know about. That's, that's what was whispered about them and around them. They lived with this. And what we know automatically is that 
this wasn't something they were hoping to overcome. This is something that had overcome them. And they were stuck. And yet what we see at the beginning of the Christmas story and a story that ultimately will lead us into a place of hope is a couple who is completely hopeless. But what I love about Luke's attention to detail is even how Luke makes the point to describe this couple. That in a day and an age where they would have been questioned, they would have had suspicion attached to them, there would have been disgrace that was present. Luke makes the point to show us that while childlessness may have been where they were, blameless was who they were even more. That the headline of their story was their commitment to God, not their childlessness. And I recognize that for some of us, we're in different places, and some of us are dealing with disappointments that's far grander and bigger. I had a a childhood friend this week whose father was murdered. And she's about to give birth to another grandbaby. And, you know, like some of us are in the midst of things that are heavy and hard. And I don't want to over, I don't want to treat lightly what you're walking through this morning. And so there is a little bit of a disclaimer in that I can't step into every one of your storylines and give you the steps for your storyline. But what I want to do this morning and our next little bit of time together is just give you a couple handles and some principles to reflect on as you walk through the course of this holiday season and every season of life that can help guide you as you deal with disappointment. Because disappointment doesn't have any discrimination when it comes to age or socioeconomics. My first disappointment of a shortwave radio, or maybe for you, it's a high school student and didn't get into the college that you wanted to. Maybe you're a couple dealing with the infertility that this couple had dealt with their entire life. Or maybe this is the first Christmas where you're not going to have a loved one present, or you're, you're going to be a divorcee or divorced. Like, We carry heavy things. And so I can't give you all the practices for each one of your individual stories, but there is a God who does and can. And the beauty of principles are principles when they're reflected on can actually help to guide you. And so here's one of the first principles that we see present in this couple is we see a couple who's for decades has lived with disappointment. And yet what what we know about them that's even more truer is that they did not get destroyed by that disappointment. They didn't get derailed by that disappointment. That what what we know about them is they're described as people who are righteous, who are blameless. People who had not let disappointment define their storyline. And they didn't let the mess of their life become the message of their life. They're a group of people who focused on what they could control, even in the midst of circumstances that they couldn't. And this is a really important, important principle that's playing out in their life is that they have continued to focus on the things they can control, not kind of caught up in what they cannot. Because many of us have things in our life we can't control. We can't control corporate layoffs that happened way up top that had nothing to do with who you were. We can't control the circumstances that we find ourselves in sometimes. But we can control who we are and what we do, and that's what we see this couple do. They had been blameless, even in the midst when other people had considered 
them to be full of blame. In a day and age where there was a stigma, they had stayed faithful. And they show us there's something about being present and acknowledging the feelings of disappointment, but not allowing them to preside over your life. Because in the midst of every bad season, there are good things. There are gifts in the midst of even tragedies. And they had somehow managed to intentionally, probably sometimes regularly, daily, if not hourly, had made a choice to focus on what they could control and not focus on what they couldn't. One of the things that fascinates me about Tom Brady, because I love to study people who are just like the greats of whatever they are. And it's not really in question that Tom Brady will retire at some point in the future as one of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history. And what amazes me about Tom Brady is when you dig into his storyline, not just the fact that he's picked so late in the draft coming out of Michigan, but that prior to him even arriving in Michigan, that in his freshman year, he never even played. He was a bench warmer. He was a quarterback that his coach described as someone with platypus feet. Like, here we are. Tom Brady will be forever known as the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And yet in high school, he was not described as a potential GOAT. He was called a platypus. No one predicted a platypus could become a GOAT, and yet he did. And his coach, the reason he said he had plodding platypus feet, which was a really funny wordplay, actually, um, was that Tom Brady had an impressive arm, but his lower half, his lower half was just a hot mess, which gives me hope because I feel like my lower half, like from here all the way down, is a hot mess too. And I'm like, if there's a hope for a hot mess platypus, maybe there's, a, there's hope for a hot mess like me too. Right? And like what he does during that season, I think is fascinating. So one of his friends talks about kind of looking back um, that Tom Brady was basically like, man, look, you've got some potential, but what's going on down there is never going to happen out there. And um, one of his friends who was a wide receiver on his team came over to Brady's house. And what he noticed was five dots that had been spray painted in his garage. And those five dots were were little dots for Brady to run drills to strengthen his lower body coordination. And here's a man who had been dealt platypus feet, but didn't allow the dealing of the platypus feet to prevent him from one day becoming a goat. And I, I think while that story doesn't necessarily kind of radiate and resonate with all of us, because maybe you're like, well, that's Tom Brady, but he wasn't always Tom Brady. It was that Tom Brady was dealt circumstances, and, in, and instead of surrendering, instead of using his platypus feet to use as an excuse for why he can't be or shouldn't be or will never be, he just saw the choice that he did have, which was, I can work on it. This is, this is what I've got dealt, so let me work them, let me reshuffle them, and let me make a choice to continue to grow in that area. Because when you find yourself in circumstances that you can't control, there are still some things that you can. And when you focus on the decisions that you can make, not the disappointments that you can't unmake, then it puts you in a position to see disappointment not as a dead end, but as a detour. 
I, I feel like I get reminded of this regularly. I don't know if any of you use Waze, the navigation um, GPS system. I use Waze all the time um, because it just helps, you know, it just kind of helps you battle traffic. And so whenever I'm driving, Waze is on. And it's really funny, like even this past week, I'm I'm driving from a, a meeting in, in the city, and I'm coming back over here, and I put in the destination, and it was around like 2.30 p.m., and as I was driving, like there were certain moments during the drive where I was like screaming at Waze, because I'm trying to come to Westwood, and it was literally taking me to Newton, and I was like, what are you doing? I'm in the car by myself, and I'm talking to it, I'm like, why am I in Newton? And I'm like, I must have typed in the wrong address. And, uh, you know, I'm trying not to die and figure out, does this thing know where I want to go? Because if it knows where I want to go, it's definitely taking me the wrong way to get there. And yet what ends up happening is I do. I go through Newton, and I'm, next thing you know, I'm on 9, and now I'm turning onto the interstate, and I get to Westwood right on time. And, and as I was thinking about this message, I was like, you know what? In some ways, when we... When we use the decisions that we can make, we can start to deal with our disappointments like detours. And, and quite honestly, a lot of times it works out a lot like ways. A bulk of the time, you have no clue why you're where you are. And there are plenty of moments in the journey where you're not even sure you're going to make it. And you're looking around and you're like, I don't have a clue while I'm driving through this community. Why am I in Taunton when I want to be in the North Shore, right? Like, what is going on? But the brilliance of Waze is that Waze has a perspective and Waze has information you don't have. It knows things that are coming up ahead, your normal route, and it, and it senses that and the algorithm reroutes you around that. And I think that there's something to be said, even at a spiritual level, where sometimes God does work in mysterious ways, like ways. That he gets us to where we always hoped we would get to, but we just don't get there the way we thought we would have. And somehow, we always get there right on time. Because we focus on the decisions we can make. And that puts us in a position to treat disappointments like detours. And that gives us an ability to see setbacks for just setbacks, not storylines. It, it gives us an ability to walk through disappointment and feel the pain, but not be destroyed by it. And I think this is incredibly relevant because Christmas is one of those times of the year where there isn't a way to ignore some of the disappointments in our life. Right? I mean, you don't, have, you don't have the job to distract you. You don't have the teams to distract you. It's kind of culture shuts down. And so the things that are lacking in your life, they're, they're obvious. The disappointments that you're dealing with, there's nothing to distract you from them. And you're, you feel that and you're reminded of it constantly in the midst of the holiday season. And it's really hard to ignore those personal things. And yet, what we see in this couple is not a couple who uses their circumstance as an excuse. They somehow stay faithful even in the midst of what everything around them and what everyone around them said was completely their fault. And that courage 
to continue to make that choice. Help them to make it through. And there are so many different details where I'm like, well, what if, what if, you know, what about this and this situation? What about this and this situation? Look, I, I'll gladly go to coffee with you and help you unpack what these principles play out. Because I know that if this is your first year, your first Christmas, and you're divorced, and you've got kids, that this disappointment feels like a dead end. It doesn't feel like a detour. It feels permanent. But for you, that decision may be, well, you know what? You cannot, you can't undivorce. It is what it is. But you can still create something. It may not be what you have had, but you can create something new for your family in a tradition. And that there are certain things about this season that doesn't feel right, but there are some things intentionally you can do that can make a new right in the midst of it. That maybe you're dealing with health issues or maybe you're walking through infertility. That there are realities that feel like dead ends. But where are the decisions? Where are the things that you still can control? What are the things that you can still leverage in this moment, in this life, right now, that you still have control over? And I think what oftentimes prevents us isn't just knowing what to do, because that's That's a real struggle. If you're in the midst of grief right now, your what to do may simply be to grieve and to accept what you're walking through and to acknowledge the pain and to let the waves ride over you. That sometimes the first step is to finally stop living in denial about your marriage and where it is and to recognize, you know what, this feels like a dead end. And to invite someone to help you because there is a way that your dead end in your marriage can become a detour to a better marriage. But you have to be willing to invite someone into your storyline. And that may be what your choice is, is stop denying and extend an invitation. And one of the things that I've put in the message app, because I was just conscious of the reality of what we're walking with and what some of you walked in with. Inside the message notes, you'll see right underneath um, the two questions that we ask, um, what did you hear and what are you going to do with it? Um, Underneath those two basic kind of um, that sentiment uh, is a a header that says resource. And in that resource is a link to a YouTube channel um, from uh, some some individuals that we know and trust that have just kind of created um, video playlist, walks from everything from dealing with this is your first Christmas or this is your first kind of your you remarried and your step family and what does that look like because there's new dynamics and there's some videos about grief and anxiety and suicide and depression and covers a full gamut and looks at some of the addiction struggles that we may be dealing with but it's a it's a really good resource and it's there and no one's going to know you're watching it and it's free And in the midst of that, it may help unlock for you in your specific season, in your specific circumstances, some of the choices that you can make to make it through this season. But I think the other side is not just knowing what to do. I think that there's something to be said for actually stepping out and doing it too. Because oftentimes, in the midst of disappointments, we get stunned, we get kind of discouraged, and we just want to kind of surrender want to sit on the side of the curb and just kind of sulk in it. 
and bring out our violins and kind of acknowledge and host the pity party. Because I've been there. What I've found in my life is that I send out invitations to my pity party and people never show up. I'm the only one. And they're really good pity parties, but no one comes. The harder thing is to do something. And I want to be PG-13 because I recognize the room. But you dig into this storyline. So, you know, Zechariah goes into the temple and because he has his lot pulled and now he's arriving and he's in there doing his thing. And um, this angel shows up, which is kind of, you, you know, a little different. Angels don't typically show up. Never had an angel show up in front of me. So, you know, Zechariah, he has this angel show up and the angel's like, hey, Zechariah. And Zechariah's like, whoa. And um, he's like, so, Zechariah, I've heard, God's heard your prayer. And you're going to have a baby. And Zechariah's like, well, how's that going to happen? And he's like, Zechariah, come on now. You know how that happens, okay? Like, You've been married a long time. This is not this is not ambiguous for you, right? Like, you know, he's not going birds and bees. Zechariah's statement is around doubt. He's like, are you kidding me, God? And Zechariah is told, well, you know what? You're a priest, like, of all people. You've prayed this. You, I'm an angel. Last, you know, as a general rule, if an angel appears in front of you, you should probably go with it, right? Just saying, if that ever happens to you, probably go with it. Zechariah doesn't roll with it. And so he's like, I'm going to give you some time to think about it, Zechariah. And so until this baby is born, you're not going to talk. Which, in my theory, probably helped what happens next. He goes home. And, you know, he hadn't been there. Elizabeth's like, my man looking good with his uniform on. Because the man in the uniform looks sharp. And he's got his priestly drab on. And he can't say anything to mess it up. Because that happens. That's free for you. Some of you should probably copy him, okay? And then what happens is, bam, like John the Baptist, which is one of the most famous um, figures in the New Testament, shows up as a result. And it's this amazing turn of events. And, And I'm not trying to be funny, but for those who've walked through infertility, you know that that act is an act of faith. Because that act becomes an act of a reminder of what's not happening in your life. And you see a couple take that step. And now why I wish every step of faith was that fun? It's not always that fun. But the reality is, is that was still a step of faith for them. And the choice to make and step and to move towards believing that maybe this isn't a dead end, but it's a detour, is a courageous thing. To believe that God's not done and that maybe there is something that can still happen in the midst of this. And what I love is in verse um, 23, it says he goes home and then it says, After this, his wife became pregnant and for five months she remained in seclusion. And then verse 25, I want you to notice something. It says, The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now, I want you to leave that verse up there because this is actually, look at the quotation marks. When I was studying, I was like, man, that's strong. Because where does this come from? This comes from Mary. Mary is quoting Elizabeth 
to Luke. Like, because what happens is Mary and what will happen with her in, in a few verses, she, she's going to be told Jesus is going to be born. She knows no one's going to understand what's going on in her life. And so what does she do? She goes to her cousin's house. This is her cousin. Zechariah and Elizabeth are her cousins. She goes to her cousin's house because she's heard word from, from Gabriel, the same angel, that, hey, you may feel like no one's going to understand you, but there's one other person who will understand. And so she goes to her cousin's house, and we know from the timeline that she is there, and she serves as most likely Elizabeth's midwife during the birth of John. And here's the thing. So um, uh, just recently, in the last few months, uh, the oldest woman in history, like in modern um, medical history, gave birth to twins. And it's this lady right here. And she was 73 years old. Now, here's the crazy thing. I'll show you that picture because you may say, well, how can Mary decades later give such a vivid account for the words that Elizabeth says? Well, it's because when you sit across from that and she's holding and telling you about her children, that burns into your mind and memory. And I can imagine Mary as this teenage girl sitting and looking at Elizabeth, who looks a little bit like that, holding John in her arms, saying, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. What's amazing is that woman, I was reading um, an interview with her, she utters the exact same words Elizabeth does. Almost 2,000 years later. Almost verbatim what Elizabeth says. And so I, I think Mary's image in her mind is of that kind of woman in that season of life holding a brand new baby, saying, look what God has done. And that burned into her heart and her mind. And it should burn into our hearts and our mind too because what we see in this story, just one other sentence to highlight and then we're done, is Zachariah is in there and the angel shows up and what does the angel say? He says, I, God has heard your prayers. I, I, I don't... I don't think that's something you should read through quickly. Because Zechariah shows up and, and for decades he feels like heaven has not moved. And the angel in his opening statement says to him, Zechariah, heaven's been moved by your prayers. I know you haven't seen the movement from your prayers, but heaven has been moved by your prayers. And for some of you, I wish I could step into your storyline and, and do whatever wand or magic or however it happens. I wish I could step in and fix it. But I think this passage, that sentence, is probably one of the most powerful things that we can all walk away with this morning. Is that the God in heaven above was moved by the words from earth below that God heard the words 
God heard his heart crying out with disappointment. God heard what he was going through. And heaven was moved by the words that came from earth below. God wants to hear from you in the midst of your disappointment. God wants to hear your heart. God wants to to hear and to see your tears and for you to be real. You don't need me. Some of you growing up, I recognize, got told if you really wanted God to hear your prayers, someone else needed to pray them on your behalf. But that's not true. God loves you. And He desires to hear your heart's desire. He already knows it. But there's something that happens when we start to pour it out to Him. When we start to unpack for Him the pain that we feel in the midst of the grief that we're walking through. Or in the child that we don't have. Or in the husband that's not here. Or the job that we don't have. Like he wants to hear that because in that moment there is an exchange as we cry out about the pieces in our life that are not right. He starts to exchange it for the peace that makes us feel it's all right. Even when life is not. There is this beautiful exchange from heaven to earth that happens long before any type of movement on earth. That there is a God of comfort who is listening who loves you, who's not distant, who's not cold towards you, but desires to walk into your journey with you, who's intimately aware of what pain looks like. I mean, the beauty of the Christmas story is, even if you don't believe it's true, I think, honestly, we all want it to be true. The the idea that God would know what it's like to be you, That God stepped into this earth and he felt what you felt. He experienced what you experienced. Like Jesus knew what it was like to lose a parent. He knew what it was like to have bad days and to get sick. And to somehow know that you're talking to a God who knows all of that. It brings comfort and peace in a way that it's just amazing. This week, um, I was at that meeting, and I was in a hurry, and there was all the snow that was kind of dropped out of nowhere because I was clearly not looking at the weather reports that week. And I remember being like, oh, my goodness, where did all the snow come from? And I parked, and I'm walking through, cutting through um, Fenway area. And I turned down this side street. There was construction, so I'm going around. And it takes me by, um, it takes me by this building. And I look up, and I'm like, that building looks really familiar. And I remembered it. A year ago, it was the building that I went to after, you know, my wife and I had been journeying through our infertility struggles with our second for about seven years. And my wife had gone through all the testing, and now it was my turn to go through all the testing. And this was the building I had to go through for testing. And it was the test done there, it was the blood drawn there that led me to be sat down with the doctor and told, hey, the reason you can't have a kid is because of you, Chris. And what was amazing for me was walking by that building and looking over and realizing almost, almost a year, a little more than a year later, 
just 30 minutes before that moment of walking by that building, I'd kissed my four-month-old son, bye. And I'm not promising you that God is going to step into your circumstance and situation and take you to the place your heart's always longed to be. But I do know that He is able. And I do know that every single morning I walk into a room and I see a smiling face of a four-month-old that for seven months was, a, for seven years, was a gut-wrenching, brutally honest, lot of tears, a lot of sadness, and a lot of darkness. And that we never gave up. That we chose to keep believing. We chose to keep pouring out our heart. That song here again that we sang earlier, I wish you could have ridden in the car with me with that song because there are plenty of days where I would sing that song to the top of my lungs, believing and crying out, saying, God, I need you here. I am not enough. And I didn't just mean that in some spiritual sense. I meant literally the doctor says I'm not enough. God, please make me enough for her. That you can move heaven with your words. And that I know that we will never get to where we want to go if we just sit down on the side and we treat it like a dead end. And we focus on the circumstances of our life. And we lose sight of the choices that we can still make. And that's why today, as we wrap up, I'm our team's going to lead us into one of the most powerful choices that we can still make in every circumstance. And for some of us, I recognize it's a weird, it's a weird choice that you can still make. But it was the choice that sustained me. It's a choice that sustains me in every single season I walk through. It's, you can call it singing, you can call it music, you, some of you may even call it a rock concert. Um, in, in the Bible, it's called worship. And it's an intentional Instead of focusing on our circumstances, it's fixing and focusing on our heart of the God who's above our circumstances. It's what Zachariah is, what Elizabeth did, to choose to focus on who his character is, independent of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So our team's going to lead us in this song called It Is Well. And for some of you, it may be a song that you need to sing today out of the heart of where you are. For some of you, it's a song you need to write down because one day it'll be a song you need to sing. But I wanted to give to you some today some handles for you to be able to step into this holiday season and every season of life with a hope and with a confidence that Merry Christmas really does seek to bring us. That even in the midst of disappointments, we don't have to be destroyed by them. We still have decisions we can make that can ultimately become detours that take us to a place we never imagined we'd ever end up in the midst of the grief and the pain we find ourselves in. Because above it all is a God who loves you, who's for you, and who gave up His Son so that you could have life in every single season of life. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you're exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. 
If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.